0: Content warning. The Silence Voices Stories of MST podcast discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics related to military sexual trauma. We want to provide a safe space for survivors and those seeking to understand these issues better. Please be advised that the content may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is in need of support, please consider seeking guidance from a mental health professional or a trusted resource. Welcome to Silence Voices, Stories of MST, hosted by Rachelle Smith. This podcast is dedicated to giving a voice to military sexual trauma survivors. Each week, we'll bring you powerful stories of courage, resilience, and healing. Join us on this journey to create awareness, spark dialogue, and drive change within the military community. It's time to break the silence and amplify the voices of those who have been silenced for far too long. Listen in and become a part of a movement that's shaping the future. Voices, stories of MST. Hey, welcome back to a new episode of Silence Voices, Stories of MST. This is Rachelle Smith, your host, as always. I hope everybody had a very safe and relaxing holiday season. If you didn't know, on December 28th there was big news. A new law went into effect concerning MST. So now Commanders and leadership are officially out of the process when it comes to prosecuting things. It's just a huge deal. It's the biggest change to the UCMJ in 50 years. It's now in the hands of outside legal counsel. So, this is a huge victory for us. And now, on today's episode, we have Nikki. She is just an amazing woman. She was the first sergeant in the Air Force and She has quite the story to tell. She has such a unique perspective, not only from her own experience with MST, but she was actually the first sergeant over on the training side at Lackland when there was that big scandal that happened back in between 2009 and 2012. So she's able to kind of give us a different perspective than what was shown on the news and kind of explain what it was like with leadership trying to figure out what to do in, in such an extreme case of MST that was on such a large scale. And again, she shares her own personal story and how she overcame, and she's also a published author. So you'll hear information about her book and actually how to go purchase it and show her some support. She is just an incredible woman with such a great sense of humor, and it was a joy to speak with her so as you know, it is difficult to get on the show and share these types of stories. So if you want to send her a word of encouragement, please hang out till the end of the episode and I will share with you how.
1: Hello. Thank you for um, allowing <laughs> me to come on your platform and discuss MST and the effects that it had on my life and what I'm doing now.
0: Yeah. And thank you for the just courage to come on here and share some of these just painful, dark moments in the life, but the power behind the show is just the ability to show the light that's at the end of the tunnel in these situations. You you can heal and you can have mm-hmm. a great life, even mm-hmm. with this event in your past. Speaking of that, we'll just start with your military career. So which which branch had you chosen and and why? Okay, so
1: I came into the Air Force in 1993, right out of high school, born and raised in New York City. I went into the military mainly because I knew if I went to college, my parents were southern parents that were very strict and I didn't necessarily want anyone telling me what to do, which is funny because I'm going into a branch just you know go in the military for someone to tell me what to do, but You're learning to live life. You know, you're not owing anyone anything. You know, you don't have to answer as far as if you need money or you need anything. You're kind of earning your way of life. That's what brought me to the military. Oddly enough, I was actually going to join the Army. But the Army made a mistake and showed me the VHS tape for their basic training. And I determined that that wasn't for me. Um, (laughs) They do a lot of running around in dirt and stuff that just didn't go well with an 18-year-old graduating from high school, and the most I've ran was playing basketball and and running to the train station to catch my train. Honestly, I joined the Air Force for four years and ended up staying 26 and a half years.
0: Where I'm sure your career took you all around the world. Mm-hmm. Did you have a favorite duty station? I know this
1: is going to sound cliche. I'm sure everyone is going to say it, but... I don't know if I necessarily had a favorite. I will say that each base brought some memorable times, but it was the people that really brought my favorite times at each installation I was at. I will always say overseas was the best for me. I had the opportunity to be stationed in England, Turkey, and I retired out of Japan, Okinawa, Japan, which was a beautiful location. Like the Air Force's best, I can't speak for the other branches, but I, I know they were there, but for the Air Force, it was like the best kept secret I don't remember people talking about Okinawa, but it was a beautiful location. But each place, it was about the people, not the actual location.
0: I hear you. It's, I mean, these people become your family. You see them yes, more yes. than your own family. So. Absolutely, absolutely. So what was it like going in at 18? Not. It doesn't sound like you knew much about the military prior. Mm-hmm. Was it a shock? I knew
1: a little my
0: dad was drafted
1: in in Vietnam Mm. Army, Mm. but he didn't really talk about it much. I just knew that that's what he did. Because I had Southern strict parents, me coming into basic training was like a breeze. You know, your parents can do a little bit more than, than the training instructors can do to you. So I adapted, I think, in my opinion, very well because I grew up in a big city, right? So a big melting pot. And so now... I'm in this space where it's still different people, but I'll be honest, my first base was crazy. Like I was stationed at K.I. Sawyer. Upstate Michigan is now closed. It was a, I want to say it was a bomber installation. It closed two years after, man, that was in the middle of nowhere. You can ice fish and deer hunt. That That's what you did up there. So just imagine I'm living a big, I grew up in Manhattan, so I'm leaving a big city and then they land me in Upstate Michigan where people walk. I didn't even know what flannel was until I went up there. <laughs> I didn't know what flannel was, but I learned very quickly. <laughs> flannel deer hunting season. They had a, it, it was just, it was so opposite of how I lived, but even mm-hmm. with the change, it will always be the people for me. I Again, it wasn't, it wasn't big for me as far as change because I literally am from a city that never sleeps. So every day is different. So it was just me learning how to live in the environment that I was in. That was the big thing. I mean, it snowed 40 inches like my first two months there. Right. Ooh. And I'm only 5'2". So. <laughs> oh.
0: Oh, no. Oh my gosh. I can actually relate to that because my family got stationed in Alaska in 2000 ah. and we we left from Mississippi, so it was. Hmm. We it might as well have just put us on Mars, you know. Like right right, 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 <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's definitely the Bonzi forge, especially when you go to a, an isolated place like that. Mm-hmm. Like that's all you have is your your homies and and uh, your coworkers, and back then you didn't have. Facebook or no, iPhones or no, any of those no. ways to distract yourself. You had, you know, the Simpsons no, came on on Sunday. <laughs> like,
1: you know, the biggest thing was for us, like if we were leaving the base at that time, 20 minutes away was McDonald's and I was so excited to go get nuggets. I'm like, oh, we going to McDonald's. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. The the biggest store, if you wanted to buy clothes with JCPenney. So I had to order all, it was just, it was crazy. But the good thing you weren't going through it by yourself. So whatever things that you may like or dislike, you're not the only one. And so I found solace in that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. I love that. And just progressing forward, moving from place to place, Mm -hmm. did you ever feel like the presence of MST?
1: Not when I first came in. What I will tell you, I do have a story where, so 18 years old coming in, I had a stalker at my first base, a stalker, and it was really bad. So I'm admin and I'm working for what they call security police at the time, security forces today, but security police at the time. And as an admin person, I'm never going to have the same hours as the cops, right? But this guy seemed to know when I was leaving all the time. And I would tell people about it. And It was, like, oh, that's just how he is, right? That was the thing. That's just how he is. I went to a party and he became touchy-feely. And so I'm like, okay, now I'm angry. And the people around me are angry. And so they say, go talk to your first sergeant. What you said, this is 1993. So I go to my first sergeant and I'm telling him the story. And he then looks at me dead in my eye and said, what did you have on to make him want to touch you? From that point, and I want to say for the next 10 years, I didn't talk to a first sergeant. You have to deal with them, right? When you in process, out process installations, but I didn't talk because of that one first sergeant. Lucky for me, I did come across a good one. One that I would say he bulldozed his way into my life. Like he showed me (laughs) what a first sergeant was supposed to be like uh cared about me in a time where I needed him, even though I didn't think I needed him. And because of that moment, I said to myself, if I had the opportunity, I would become a first sergeant. And I luckily had the opportunity some years later. That was my first experience where I was like, man, this is crazy. Like you're supposed Mm -hmm. to be the person you go to if something happens. And you asked me what I had on. That was my first experience. And I was like that that's horrible.
0: Yeah, it's the the victim blaming is rampant within the service. Uh And although we've taken the steps forward, it's it's still this mindset of of what did you do to cause Mm -hmm. this (laughs) rather than that person is an aggressor or a predator. Right. Right. It's just infuriating to hear that and I, I do remember seeing some of the pamphlets I think it was probably early 2000s about sexual trauma and and the way that they were saying to prevent it and even one of the pamphlets said just submit you know and, and report it after and it was just like the who wrote this well I'll
1: do you one better I'll do you one better. So, some years later, I'm sure you're aware, because you said you were public affairs, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Okay. So, I'm sure you're aware of the biggest sexual assault scandal in military history was in basic training, Daniel Mm Lackland. I was the only female first sergeant during that time. I was in the midst of it. Although, with anything, when things break, a lot of it was sensationalized. I will be honest about that. But there were some real life cases. At least from my experience, when the military finds anything out about anything that's going on, they tend to have the pendulum go way left or way right before we go to the middle. As these cases are going on, I'm in. I mean, I'm in courts. I'm in. I'm everywhere. I'm. <laughs> it was a lot of, a lot of who did it, why they did it, instead of trying to figure out how we're going to deal with each situation at a time, as opposed to putting a blanket, this is what we're going to do, it's going to solve everything, right? And that's what was going on to the point that they brought in a a task force to deal with what was going on. My personal opinion, and this is my humble opinion alone, was a lot of it, again, it was political, Um, instead of solving issues. Again, there were real cases, but then, then, then there wasn't. Like if you went to the courtroom, like if me and you went to the courtroom, you're like, this is weird. But then the real cases were horrible. But my personal opinion that it probably was going on for years, right? And one came to be. And so now we gotta eradicate. So let's let's get rid of all the instructors and let and, and start all over. Well, that's not the key either, right? And so I had the luxury or not of sitting in a position where a lot of questions were asked of me as a female first sergeant, what I thought funny now, but now that I think about it, one of the suggestions from a higher up said, first sergeant, what do you think about us having, (laughs) what do you think about us only having female flights and male flights and we train them? And I said, well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. That way you can feel comfortable. You can feel safe. And I said, so what happens when they go into the real world? Like, we, we're going to we're going to live here, we're going to do this, but then they're going to go off. So, what are, you, what are we doing? Right. And I remember telling this, and it was a male that was coming up with a mm-hmm. suggestion and some other ones. I said, well, you might as well put me back in a skirt and make me a secretary like we were back in the 60s, because that's what it sounds like you want us to do. And he was like, oh, no, first sergeant, that's not what I mean. And I said, well, I think y'all need to go back to drawing board because we need to learn how to work together. And if you want me to make it elementary, we need to keep our hands to ourselves. They teach in elementary school. That's what we need to go back to. We don't need to make an overall how we interact because not that's not real. And they even talked about, well, only female TIs should talk to female trainees and male. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense either. Because when I go in the real world, guess what the numbers are? It's way more of y'all than it is us. So, so how does that work? Well, I don't know. We haven't gotten that far. Okay, well, because we don't need to do that.
0: Yeah, clearly right? we you haven't gotten that far.
1: <laughs> right. We, we don't need to have only feet because that's not how the world works. During that time, I and this is just from my experience. I didn't like the fact that they tied the hands of commanders that really wanted to take care of their people. Again, the Air Force was making, it was just a way left and way right. And I, again, I told you I was a New Yorker, so I was honest. Um, Mm -hmm. And I love my commanders at that time. They listened to me because I've always said right, never wrong anyone. And so I am. I was lucky enough to work on the two commanders that listened to me and didn't go with status quo because that what was going on. But that was my next time where I saw where it was just people weren't caring about people. They were caring about the optics. That's it. That's the problem. And even when I go back to visit, I hate even going on that side of Lachlan because it was, man, I was in the middle of that for two and a half years. And it was really a dark cloud over That part of the base, very draining, people wanting to just throw UCMJ left and right to say they did something as opposed to, okay, is this, what is really going on? One of the things that bothered me during that time was because you were a male, you automatically were in the wrong. I'm like, well, we can't do that either. We can't, we can't say because the female said this, we have to truly investigate. We truly have to care about our people both ways. It was, it, that was a crazy, when I tell you that was probably the crazy experience in my, in my 26 and a half years to, to be there during that time. But again, I was lucky enough to work at least in my unit with some great commanders that cared about their people because mm-hmm. there there were some other units where I was like, this is, I, mm-mm
0: yeah I was in college in San Antonio around that time, and mm-hmm. what was it yeah, there were college courses on base, and so you have to drive through that area yeah. and yeah. it yeah it was
1: news, which yeah. is which was crazy because in the real world, that is not going on right mm-hmm. so um yeah that that was i again, I don't even like going on that side of the base, and I believe. Yeah the unit that I was in, I believe that dorm has gone down. For me, it, it was, it's triggering. Right, because just right. imagine mm-hmm. we literally, and I had some people that had to go to confinement. They were looking to get them on one thing and it was on something. It was, it was when I tell you it was crazy time. But yes, for me is. to have people put chains on risk and, arm, I mean, it was very mentally taxing time and it still didn't solve, the issue. What is the core of it? What are the parameters that we can set? Unfortunately, you cannot get rid of all perpetrators. We can't do it in a civilian world. We we can't do it in the military. So, what can we do to set parameters? Now, what I will say, my time there, and I don't know what they're doing today. I felt like they did a good job with putting more people in the units. Uh, making the first sergeants um, a little bit more uh, hands on because that, when I first came to basic training, first sergeants, they weren't utilizing their first sergeants. You know, we were there to, I don't know, do Red Cross messages and give out cookies, I guess. I don't know. Putting chaplains in the units, putting me- mental health technicians in the units. At least that's what I saw. Allowing people to move around. A lot, you know, it's not a secret society because when I first came to basic training, it was like some secret society, right? You know, mm-hmm. you can't show up. it's not like that anymore. And to me, that was preventative. And, and what I loved about my commanders is that we weren't leadership 730, 430. Like I was prone to show up on the weekends. You don't know when the first sergeant's coming in. And I think that's preventative measures. I don't know if you're a predator or not, but you don't know if the first sergeant's going to be there. So the likelihood of you wanting to do something is probably not going to happen. Cause I don't know when she's going to show up. That was the biggest time for me where I was around it all the time. And oddly mm-hmm. enough, it still didn't trigger things that happened to me earlier in my career.
0: Right. Yeah. And I, I do think a lot of people don't understand with sexual harassment or sexual assault is that it's not about desire or attractiveness. It's strictly about power. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And
0: to me, I I just, I don't see leadership or, you know, the good idea fairies or whomever, the people that are in control, they they don't seem to recognize that or want to recognize that.
1: Yeah. What I didn't
0: like, what I didn't like at
1: that time is that, they didn't trust the people that were on the ground, so to speak. It was these people mm-hmm. that were, you know, headquarters somewhere mm. wanting to say they did something. We're going to write this policy. Yes. It's going to write all the wrong. Well, that that doesn't work. It doesn't work anywhere. Much like, and I don't want to make the comparison, much like we have an equal opportunity policy, but yet racism happens, sexism happens, whatever those things that we have on the wall, it's still happening. We Mm -hmm. we got this policy. And if it wasn't, then we wouldn't have a need for UCMJ. We wouldn't have a need. We wouldn't have to have our own set of rules. So again, I don't know what's going on today, but during that time, I just, it, it just, it was very disheartening for people up here to try to tell people down here what's going on when it should be the other way around. Hey, we need more of this, or we need help with this. It was someone up here yeah. trying to make it better. As you say, the idea fairy.
0: My favorite one, mm-hmm. the stand down days. They're like, okay, we're going to stop all operations. And we're going to talk
1: about it. Uh, okay. you Do you really think we're going to be open? Like, I get it. You want to check the box. You had this conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to have a down day. I get it. But then what? I've always, and I've always been the then what happens then what do we do? Because it's, it doesn't happen on this day. It, it's, it's happening all the time, unfortunately. So how do we do preventative measures?
0: And I, I do remember people mocking it, even the, the stand down day that we had at my first base at, at Fairchild. There was like a group of, I don't know, maybe they were I think they were maintenance guys, but they Mm -hmm. piled into like a big truck and then rolled down all the windows. And then they were playing, like blasting a Taylor Swift song. It was the, I knew you were trouble when you walked in song. Like they were just blasting it and like laughing hysterically in the car or in their truck. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, see this, this is why these things are not effective. Nobody takes them seriously And and nobody wants to be talked at for an hour about not being, or, you know, basically it's just being repeated 18 different ways saying, don't be a rapist rather than saying, look, this, we, we just want you to take care of the person next to you. That's all that really needs to be said is is watch out for the person next to you. (laughs) But seeing the, the disconnect too of, of leadership, like these are people, you know, they've been in service for God knows how long, but they're like, oh, maybe we should make a TikTok about it. Like, no, (laughs) it's just, it's so infuriating. Not that I have a perfect solution, but it's. No, but it, but this is how we do it. We have, we have
1: to have healthy conversations. Exactly. I remember there was a time we had a commander's call. I want to say the topic was, I want to say it was sexual assault prevention. I don't remember what it was. And I remember we had a lawyer present. Lawyers will speak in lawyer terms as they should. If you listen to a lawyer talk, there is absolutely no feelings, no emotions, no anything. And so I'm sitting in the audience and this question's being asked. And this lawyer is talking to the masses. It sounds insensitive, but because I've been in the courtroom, I know this is how they talk. And I remember getting up Saying something, like trying to put myself in the audience's shoes, how this sounds, right? So let me me put some emotions to it. And I think that particular lawyer got it. Like he was like, okay, maybe I should dial it back. Oddly enough, a month later, a command chief brought me in his office and he was upset with me about something. And it was more of a personal thing. But he asked me about the scenario that I just told you about. Uh, He wasn't there. He said to me, I heard you were acting ghetto. And I said, and listen, 20 something years ago, I probably would have flipped the table. And and so I said, "Okay, Nicole, you've had much training. You know, you you don't need to do that. Um, He wants to get under your skin for some reason. And I said, not sure if that's the term you want to use. I don't even know what ghetto means. So can you frame that? Like, I put it back on. Can you frame that for me? I have two educated parents. I live very well. Can you frame what that looks like for me? You know what that means. No, but I don't want to make the intuitive leap that you're making this a racial thing when we were clearly talking about sexual assault. Why? You know what I mean? Yet, we have equal opportunity policy. And he's a command chief. And I'm a first sergeant. So imagine we're at leadership. So what's going on down? So it doesn't surprise me when you say you saw these maintainers in a vehicle, because if I'm having this conversation up here, what do you think is going on down here? So that doesn't oh, yeah. surprise me that you had that encounter.
0: Like you just, you have no words for some of the, the experiences that you have just uh, as a, a woman of color. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, That's not like in 1980,
1: 1970, 1960 this is in the 2000s.
0: This is like Mm mid-2000s. Like, really? Like, am I really having this conversation? I know at my first base, uh, the thing I heard frequently when I I first got there was, oh, you're so pretty for a Black girl. Oh, you speak so well. Oh, Oh, no. You're an officer? Wow. I don't really see that. (laughs) And I'm just sitting there like, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Like I don't even right, know how right. to what, what what, to what this. does that mean. How do you know? Right. How do you respond to that? Yeah. <laughs> and it was leadership. It was like people's spouses. It was oh, and, and right at face. when I would get comments like
1: that's like you watch too much TV. I think that's yeah. what it is. You watch too much yeah. TV because your expectation of me is yes. not reality. Okay, these are people that are playing parts like people are not walking around doing the things you must see on TV. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can read and write just like you, like it, like it, like (laughs) we're somehow I got here. I passed the test, you know, like Mm -hmm. somehow I got here. So, yeah, craziness.
0: Since I wasn't the sassy black friend or whatever, and I wasn't like "Mm -hmm," or, you know, like I wasn't your neck that command chief that I was talking about I feel
1: like he practiced this speech in the mirror the night before and he knew that the next day if I say this to her I'm going to get her up on her skin and she's going to do all those things and I did not do that which is the sad no. thing right because right you were expecting that when I didn't give it to you you didn't know what to do
0: exactly yep right? <laughs> and then they like they just keep poking at it too and it's it's like do you treat other like people of the same race
1: it doesn't happen I I can there's been many rooms over the years 20 plus years where I've sat and I'm the only not only just woman woman of color in the room and I sit and I'm like this this can't be life this can't this is (laughs) I don't want to sit in this meeting anymore where are my people I want to go where the people are at because this is ridiculous I don't want to sit in here this is not funny this is not yeah
0: It's just, it's one of those where you, you, you have a migraine all of a sudden and you're like, I never used to get migraines, (laughs) but I will also say that
1: was because I was in these rooms was probably one of the reasons why I didn't tell anyone what was going on in my marriage, even though I saw the pamphlets and they, they had to stand down days, but and I'm only speaking for my time in the military, but I'm married to another military member. There, there was a time where I did, we were both in the same unit, okay? Which was bad, right? We both in the same unit, even though we had different occupations, it became very physical. And I was like, I need to tell someone, right? So I go talk to the superintendent and I never felt like I would be protected. It was more like, okay, both of y'all are this rank and we can move you. And I never felt like I would be okay. And I have this career that is on a trajectory that I'm going to be promoted. And I always felt like if I open up my mouth about what's going on in my marriage, that it will take me off that trajectory. There was no commander's call. There was no first sergeant. There was no one that ever made me feel like there was somewhere I could go and talk about it. Even in my book, These Tears Don't Go With My Combat Boots, that's the name of the book, I talk about the incident, right? The thing that happened to me. It wasn't until I retired from the Air Force, I go to my first VA appointment, and I tell my doctor that I I've been having anxiety. She sends me down the hallway to a social worker and a social worker. Great guy. He's answered. He's asking me all these questions. And he asked me about my ex-husband and I had been divorced from him since 2007. And I wish I could tell you the question. He asked me, whatever it was, it was like a lover broken. I just got emotional. And In our conversation, he said, I cannot diagnose you, but you meet the criteria of um, military sexual trauma. And for the life of me, because I was married, it never dawned on me that that was what it was. And for whatever reason, I kept saying why I'm married. He said, but to another military member. And it took me a long time to resolve that in my mind. And then... He's like, he, you you know, when you, you go in and they, and they tell you, you know, you can get help. And I'm like, but I was married. Like that's, that was my ex-husband, you know, in my mind, it's not a supervisor. It's not a boyfriend. I'm like, and then we get to a point, I get to the point with the VA where they talk about disability and they want me to go talk to a psychiatrist to, to actually have a true diagnosis to actually talk to a psychiatrist. He doesn't know me. I just, I know we're doing this evaluation so we can have it in my records. And he's talking to me. It's very sterile conversation as it should, right? You wanna do a comprehensive. And we get to a a question where, a couple of questions where he said, did you tell anyone? I'm like, who am I telling? I'm married, right? right? Did you tell any friends or whatever? I'm like, I'm married. And I tell him, I'm a black woman in the military. I don't want to put a light on me because if I do, I don't know what that means. And I always felt like he would be okay if I said something. They they protect. I just felt that way. I don't care what you said. That's how I felt. And then uh, he said, okay. And then the psychiatrist asked me, he said, did you ever ask for an assignment out of there? And I'm like, assignment? No, when you get married, you have this code on you and you go together. And then it clicked. I said, well, I did ask to deploy. He's like typing everything I'm saying. Oh. And he said, really? Um, I said, yeah, I volunteered to go to Afghanistan. He stopped typing and said, you know,
0: that's not normal, right? To want to go to a literal war zone because that's safer than your home.
1: But it didn't click mm-hmm. until he said it out loud. And I'm like, he said he typing. I don't know what's, you know what I mean? Like, I just know I'm in this thing. And when I leave, he said, you're going to be okay. God got you. That's what the psychiatrist said. And, and it made me feel good. And I didn't know what that meant at that time. Right. Right. But that's when they gave me the true diagnosis of military sexual trauma, PTSD. Mm-hmm. And when I got that diagnosis, it actually made it worse for me for a minute because now I got a name to something that has been affecting me since 2007. It affected Every relationship, man or woman, my trust, just everything, everything that I think normal people could deal with. I I was I was chalking up as I was an introvert. Like I wasn't going to these events with large crowds because I'm an introvert. You know, I don't want to date these individuals because I'm just not ready. Like I'm coming up with all these excuses. But now I got mm-hmm. a diagnosis. And. I actually go into a slight depression because I realized that I have not been living since 2007. It is now 2019, Mm -hmm. 20, that I get this diagnosis. I have not been living. I've been raising a kid. I have been putting all my efforts in raising my son, putting all my efforts in my career. But when I get this piece of paper saying that that's what it is, I realize, yes, I did great in my career. Yes, I, I feel like I'm a great parent because my son talks to me still, right? So we good. He, he's a good, twin, He's a good healthy 25-year-old with dreams of being a physical therapist. I did all that. But what I realized, I was doing so much more because it was my way of not dealing with what happened to me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was almost like a Band-Aid. When I got that, the box in the corner where I put all my All the things that happened during that time, it started overflowing. Right. That's when the memory started happening. And I I had to deal. And my experience with the VA was great. Good. Yeah. My experience with the VA was great. It just so happened with that PTSD. So did COVID happen. So now I don't got to deal with it. Right. Now I don't want to deal with people. I don't have to deal with people. So I get to do therapy at home virtually. I would say if covid didn't happen, I don't think I would have went into a clinic. I, I don't think I would have did that because I don't want anyone to see me. I don't that's how I felt at the time. I don't want I don't I don't, I don't want to share that space. But if I'm virtually, it's okay cuz I get to turn it off when I'm done. But during covid, that's what I did my most intense one-on-one by phone and the individuals and I I would say divine, I know every Everyone's experience was not like mine, but man, I had to sit in it for a minute. Like I had to grieve that part of my life. I had to make peace with that. Wasn't my fault. Make peace with, oh, by the way, my son was in the other room and he remembers things. Make peace with my son was in the area because when that, when the incident happened for me, I would say for a good almost year and a half, I went into this darkness where I felt like I wasn't a good mom because I wasn't giving him what I needed, right? Because this person that should have made me safe, I no longer feel safe. I remember during that time when the incident happened, it was so intense, the feelings, the darkness, that I did have suicide ideations, not because Mm. I wanted to leave, because I wanted to numb the pain, Yeah. And it was my son that was the reason why I got up every day. If he wasn't around, I don't know had I would have fallen through. That's how intense because who am I gonna talk to right about it? He's a he's a senior NCO. I'm a technical sergeant at the time. Who do I talk to about this? And so it just it just stayed in me this whole time. And then in 2019, when the VA 2019 20 told me you got this thing, then all of a sudden it just it just burst, and then I had to go back in time again and deal with it.
0: What would you say might have been the most difficult part for you to come to terms with in in that situation like for me i it took the the forgiving myself aspect for not being able to truly live all of those years. I, it, it took me a long time to just love myself again and, and forgive myself yeah. for yeah. not understanding.
1: I think that I still deal with it every day. I think mm-hmm. it's a, it's a active thing. I battle with depression because of it. And every day I get up saying to myself that I'm going to give myself grace and I'm not the victim. I'm the victor. That's one of the sayings in my book. And on all those days, I'm not feeling my best. I allow myself not to feel my best, Yes, right? I don't beat myself up about it. If I don't want to go to that thing, I'm not going to go to that thing. And what I loved, at least with my therapy that I went through, is that I own me now. And I took my power back. And that's what my book was about, was taking my power back and, and saying, this is the my book that I wrote was the period to that part of my life that I hadn't done yet. From 2019, I wrote the book last year, but that time at that time with the therapy and writing the book, then I could say, all right, I'm ready. Once I make that declaration, that's when, that's when my now significant other entered my life because I was ready.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I
1: hear you. Yeah. You're ready because I'm no longer operating in my ego. You know, when, when you've gone through something like that, you want to control, I want to control the pain that may happen. I want to control the hurt that you may give me because this part of my life was so painful. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest, I, I met dating. Wasn't a problem with me. It was, it couldn't last six months because then it felt like it was going to be permanent and I don't know what you're going to do. And, I don't know how you're going to, you know what I mean? I, I just didn't stick around. But until I did the work of myself, forgiving myself, that's when I was able to have this healthy relation. And, and it's still a struggle because he's a civilian. He ha- he has no connection to the military. And I feel like he's a blessing. Well, he's a special education teacher. So I feel like God sent me someone that can that has patience, right?
0: Because right. he has patience.
1: Trust me, I have these rants sometimes and he just looks at me and he's like, okay. Do you want me to talk? Do you want me to, like, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, What a great partner. Right. He's like, So, yeah, it's not me, right? (laughs) Like, he's like, Like, No, it's not (laughs) you. I'm just having this moment. He said, Okay. But he's so patient. And that's what I need. But I had to be in a healthy space
0: because you you see
1: see people, but you don't see people until you're in that healthy space
0: unfortunately it, it's quite common for sexual trauma survivors to be in these relationships multiple times because mm-hmm. uh, yes your your sense of confidence is pretty much gone but you you also kind of perceive those behaviors to be normal until right. you do the work right. and and heal good lord i from the time i started dating up until now i was a hot mess because i not only did i have all these mental health issues that were just running me ragged but i mm-hmm. didn't recognize that someone pinching you to to express displeasure that if you didn't call that out and either nip that in the bud or sever that relationship, that pinch escalates and escalates and escalates. Right. 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 And I honestly did not know that. I didn't know anything about boundaries or Mm -hmm. even having just a personal bill of rights where these are the things I absolutely will not accept. And Mm -hmm. this is the only behaviors that I will, allow, you have to be rigid about them. It's not right. things that you're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it right. was an off day. It's it's no, this, this is how I deserve to be treated, and right. I will never accept anything less than that. Right. But right. if you, for example, maybe you've come from a household where there was abuse or trauma or something like that, your threshold for that is very different than someone else that didn't. But they Mm -hmm. came from like a a home of love and conversation and acceptance. And Mm -hmm. I I truly think predators, they look for that. Like they look for these sort of markers that you're unaware that you're displaying that you'll accept that kind of behavior. Like when if that person pinches you, for example, and you giggle it off and be like, oh, what were you doing? They're they're like, oh, okay," And then it just keeps ramping up. But now that you've written this book and, and made so much progress in therapy, are there certain coping skills that work the best for you each day? I think,
1: like I stated earlier, every day I get up with intention.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Some days I'm I'm up and I'm ready to, to, to go conquer the world. And then some days I just want to stay in the house and allow myself that. Me having platforms, me talking about it, in my mind, hoping that I help release other people from what I felt like was my own jail, so to speak, my own personal right. jail. Because the thing happened, right? And then I did get divorced, and then I do go to Turkey. I change duty station. I'm in a whole another country, but it's still affecting me. I, and I met some, and I met awesome individuals, but now it's, I think about the individual that's in front of me and uh, and tell myself that that person is not that person that you knew years ago.
0: Right. That's
1: a constant thing for me. And and you know, in the beginning of our relationship, he he would tell me, "I'm I'm not that person. I don't know who that person was, but I'm not that person. I need you to know that you're not in that relationship." So also someone that can stand on their own as well. I can't be in a relationship where that person is insecure. That's not going to work. He's very secure with himself. So that helps me cope too, because he gives me a strength, a sense of stability that I had not had or was Mm -hmm. open to, which is, which is the thing when, you you know, when you're going through trauma, you're not open to it at Mm -hmm. all. It's scary. And I, and and I met some great individuals, but I just wasn't open to it. Coping, realizing that there, you're going to have triggers and, Hopefully, you know, people do go to therapy because it, it, it it's the one thing I'm happy about that I didn't have to go anywhere, right? That was my thing. I didn't want to go anywhere. So you can get therapy no matter whatever your comfortability. Going back to the coping mechanisms that you are taught for me, believe it or not, breathing is a thing. I meditate a lot. Um, every time I get up in the morning, I'm meditating, kind of grounding myself
0: mm-hmm.
1: to go forth in the day. Those are my coping mechanism. But the, the thing, my affirmation to myself is that I'm not the victim, that I'm the victor in
0: my life. Being able to take your power back from that situation and, and move forward is, the best way I can explain it is it feels like when the opening of The Lion King and like <laughs> the, I forget the, the monkey's name, but he holds up, Simba, you know, and like everybody is celebrating underneath. But it's like a moment like that where you just feel open and uplifted, and it doesn't matter if you have fifty people cheering for you or it's just you cheering for you. You have this moment, (laughs) absolutely. And even when you do have that moment and you have an off day, you know it doesn't take away from that moment. It's just right, right, right. I think for
1: me, coming to terms that. I have this thing, but it doesn't mm-hmm. control. I survived it. And there's so much life to live, yes. to enjoy. And for the first time in my life, I'm enjoying life. And, and I, I didn't realize it. Oh, I don't have to argue. I don't have to, I don't have to watch my mm-hmm. back. I don't have to worry about what you're going to do next. No, I just didn't know because you, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, you live in this traumatic, I, le- I lived in this traumatic space for so long. And then even with the mini relationship, I didn't I didn't allow it to last long enough for me to see what it's like to deal. And mm. so for the first time I am, I'm being deliberate, but it takes work. You know, you have to come to terms, it, it takes a lot of work and I'm still working at it.
0: Yeah. Every day is is just the, the most you can do is your best. And and that's it. And, and that's okay. Yeah, there's the that concept of radical acceptance where you're just like this is me and all my my pieces, all of this makes up who I am, and I have to love it. Right. Right <laughs> I right. just have to love myself and love all of these different things is I, I know one thing for me was I I had just very low self-esteem and everything, but it was a byproduct of, of depression and, you know, just being insecure. And earlier when you mentioned that you thought you were an introvert, I legitimately thought I was an introvert when I'd been an extrovert my whole life. I was just like, Oh, I guess when you turn 28, you just kind (laughs) of, it starts off. (laughs) No, that's, that's not how it works. But um, when people, the, when your loved ones, that saw you maybe in that period of time, and then they see who you are now. Like they, they are just so happy to see that right, right. you're you're finally not maybe back to yourself, but you've grown, and just the way you carry yourself is different. Like your shoulders see, are you know back, and I'm
1: you know, I'm gonna be honest with you. Mm-hmm. My family had no idea. I am. Oh. I'm a '70s baby. Grew up in the nine, you know, like '90s. You, you, you got this tough cookie, right? Mm-hmm. So, even during that time, I am still winning awards in my job. I'm right. still functioning, so I don't look like what I was going through. Mm-hmm. I wasn't acting like what I was going through. And when I mentioned things were going on in my relationship to my superintendent, you know, letting him know. Or, you know, kind of mention it first, a start just to get a feel of what's going to happen. Oh, you guys are going to be okay. You know, you're power couple. You're this and that. I'm like, oh, this is not going to work. Right? Yeah. And there was even a point where the stress of everything was so bad. I was talking to my supervisor. I had heart attack type symptoms and I was rushed to the hospital.
0: Oh,
1: and even then in my medical records, it said mild depression but no one said anything to me. Mm-hmm. No one said anything. It wasn't until after I got out, I'm looking at my records. I was like, <laughs> why didn't no, you Maybe if someone would a- address this, right. help me address mm-hmm. this, maybe, you know? <laughs> but as a woman, a woman of color, I didn't have time to show the symptoms of anything that was going on with me. If I want my career mm-hmm. to stay on track, Or what's going to happen to my son? I I had bigger fish to fry. So if I was given any advice now, I would say, damn that career, get help. Because the career is going to close one day and you want to leave it healthy, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So if a thing happened to you, go seek help. It will feel like you're alone. All the things that you fear, yes, but you'll get through it. We are living examples that you're mm-hmm. going to get through it and we still work at it. If I had to change anything, maybe I would have opened up because no one knew. Like today, mm-hmm. when I talk about, my own mom reads my book and she's like, what why didn't you say what? I don't know, you, you raised me to be a strong individual and here I am being strong.
0: Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, we don't really get too many opportunities to be truly vulnerable when you're right. in the service. So I right. totally understand. Just the thinking about it from the aspect of being the moniker of strong black woman, that is so detrimental to us because we have to be game face all the time <laughs> or else. like All the time, mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah.
1: Even on my worst days, man, I I can't tell you how many bathroom visits I would make to right. to yeah. cry it out and yeah. then come back and. All right, let's rock mm-hmm. on. You know, let's get it on. But in long term yeah. effects is what we deal with now. Um, if there was any advice, I would say seek help. You don't have to seek help from the military. There's other avenues, and I didn't even think about it at that time. You know, I didn't go talk to a civilian or anything. There were so many avenues. I just didn't because I didn't want anything taken from me. And that was my fear because your your job, I didn't want anything to be at jeopardy. And right. when you get out of that mentality,
0: maybe you will get the help that you need. And and now are also so many more avenues just with the internet exploding. <laughs> I mean, I mm-hmm. think even now there's AI chatbots that are they're therapy bots, but I don't think that they actually offer advice, but it's just a way to get stuff off of your chest, which is just incredible.
1: I think the key for me is how do you deal with it in the community they call the military? That's the, that's the Mm -hmm. thing. How do you make the black and brown people feel safe and secure that the things you work so hard for will not be in jeopardy, not written on a, on a piece of paper not, you know, have a stand down day to talk about it. How do we make you know that you're going to be okay?
0: That's the key for me. And that was the thing that was lacking for me. That's so true. There's no real safety net. And it's not only stopping people from reporting, but it's also stopping people from, calling out other people for just, you know, right. being inappropriate or doing stuff that's crazy to us. But right. a lot of people, I'm sure they're maybe not happy with the person that's set in their ways. And they're like, well, I'm going right. to do what I'm going right. to do. And right. they don't feel like they can stand up to them because it will be written down somewhere. There will be some repercussions. Right. There's some, there's
1: some record somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, even mm-hmm. in, in your time in the military, I don't remember a time anyone saying MST and then you could be married to the individual. No one ever talked about it. So that's why it was like mind blowing when someone said that to me and I'm like, girl, you were a first sergeant and you didn't, it didn't click. It didn't click. It didn't, it never clicked.
0: Yeah, There's all these different ways when you're, you're in survival mode like that, that your brain is just like, it's, I mean, it knows what's going on, but it's like, she can't handle that right now. <laughs> you right. know, so you have all of these different ways of denial and, and masking things and hiding things from yourself and and others. So you give Oscar worthy performances. Oh, yeah. You're, was, you're on autopilot. Listen, I was mm-hmm. one of
1: the 12 outstanding airmen during mm-hmm. the worst time in my life. And you had no idea. No one had a clue. When people read my book that knew me, they're like, what in the, what? And it was like two different people, and I'm like, mm-hmm. "Well, I didn't have, I didn't have time. I right. still had a career.
0: I was like the master of compartmentalizing. I used to do that, and I would wonder, like, why am I breaking out so much? Why mm-hmm. am I always sick? Mm-hmm. Why? just because all of this stuff is because just your body
1: is dealing with it. Ha- You're yeah. not dealing with it, but your mm-hmm. body's going to deal. With. Your body's going
0: to mm-hmm. with it. Yeah, absolutely. What What do you think would be What would be the correct step forward for people of color or service members, you know, of any race or age or rank to feel comfortable to report or call people out? I think if I would have saw
1: more people like me telling a story, it may not be their story saint. I know that sounds horrible, right? You don't want to see an example, but I didn't see where I was supposed to go. You got this. Okay, you can go to your first sergeant. All right, then what? And we can move you. Well, why do I want to? Be, why do I need to be moved? You know what I mean. Those are the mm-hmm. the second, third order of effects of things. I think if people conversed more, what it looks like for help instead of just mm-hmm. sending me this piece of paper saying if something happens, call this number. Even in our stand down days, look who was talking. It would be the commander, the first sergeant, me. It 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 was. We had a. Maybe someone from mental health come talk or, you know, just 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 these people that were in these agencies. But that's not going to make me feel comfortable. That's your job. That's what you're supposed to be doing. I need kind of some real life people telling me, like, look, I've been through this. You can get help. Look at me. I'm still here. I hate to say that that that's what you need to see. Like, I feel like if I had the opportunity to feel like I was in a space where I could say something. I probably would have used my last couple of years, whatever platform I was on, telling my story and saying, look, I'm still here. There Mm -hmm. are for you and me, but I never had it. And so if you never see it, why would I talk about it?
0: Mm -hmm. When did I, I commissioned in in 2012. And maybe it was 20. 13 or 14, there was, it was April. So, you know, sexual assault awareness month. Mm -hmm. And I want to say it was a lieutenant colonel had written a commentary and it was about her being raped, but she had gone running wherever her duty station was. And I think it was when she was maybe a lieutenant or a captain at the time. And it seemed like it, it was always framed from this I was attacked by someone I didn't know, and I was, right. you know, running at night or something like that. When right. the vast majority of these assaults are people, people you know. that you work next to, that mm. you trust. And it's like that aspect is not, it's like they're just kind of shying away from it. Like they don't want yeah, to. Yeah, it's like the man
1: that's going to come. Yes. That, that's the person that does it when normally this, not to say it doesn't happen, like right? mm-hmm. the likelihood. That's not what it is. It's mm-hmm. the, the close quarters. It's you're working in these spaces that you and the other individual on these long shifts, 12 to 16 hour shifts. Yeah, it runs the gamut. And I would also say that I found when I was in basic training that there are a lot of people that come in with the trauma as well. Mm-hmm. And so you have not healed that. And then there's repeated trauma. That's, that's what I found. that I dealt with people that had repeated trauma because they haven't dealt with that. And so it keeps happening because they
0: hadn't Mm -hmm. dealt with it. It's called a trauma cycle. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I was one of them. So it was Mm -hmm. for 10 years of abusive relationships, making these terrible decisions without realizing they were terrible decisions. And, and Mm -hmm. not, I, I think one reason that therapy had not worked for me during that time was because in therapy, the therapist is not there to give you advice or or tell you how to live. Like, sure, they give you the different coping skills and they make you aware of, like, your decision tree, basically. But they lead you or they ask the questions that are supposed to lead you to, you know, unraveling that problem yourself. But if you don't see that you're in a problem, how do you unravel it? And that I kept, I was just on this merry-go-round hamster wheel of, Doing the same stuff over and over and over again until there was just this choice of I have to do something different or I'm mm-hmm. going to die. And it was as real as that. And that put me on this trajectory of, of healing. But a lot of these people that, yes, they've, they've come from horrible living situations or just, I don't know, something Maybe it was one bad thing happened or several bad things happened, but then you put them in this high stress environment and then expect them to be able to cope. And then also this high stress environment is somewhat dangerous, not because of the boogeyman out there in a park or something. It's, it's this person right. right next to you. Right. And then you have, I don't know, you just have this out of touch commander usually that does a briefing. And then.
1: <laughs> because they check the box, right? Because they have mm-hmm. They have the commander toolkit and these are the things we have to talk about because this is the month yes. of,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like this cycle that just, it keeps feeding itself because like me, these commanders are not acknowledging the root of the problem because right. they don't see it. Um, um, some of it, what I, what I noticed, I, like I said, I
1: was blessed with some commanders that were really good when I was in the position I was in. But a lot of them, what I did not like was they were so worried about their promotion, their rank. They were, you know what I mean? Not the, I'm a leader and I may have to fall on my sword on this one. You just have a lot of weak commanders out there that just, I'm not falling on my sword. What's the quickest way we can get out of this and move yeah. on? There's no moving on. Like you, you deal with it. That's mm-hmm. what, and, and there's going to be some sacrifices made and a true leader is going to figure out how to, do what they need to do.
0: That's very true. If there is a young man or young woman that's currently serving that is in that situation right now and they're, they're having just a hard time with hope maybe or, or thinking that there's, there will be an end to this and I, I will be okay, is there any message you would like to give them?
1: Yeah, the darkness that you're in doesn't last If I myself could go back in time, I would have opened up to someone to start talking, not necessarily to solve it because it can't, because the the thing happened, right? But to now figure out how to get through it. And you will Mm -hmm. get to the other side, but you have to open up. And once you open up each day, you get stronger. And then hopefully... You'll tell someone in your leadership team because that thing that happened, when we don't talk about it, that thing continues, whether that is with you or another victim. And so that's how we stop the cycle of the actions of the perpetrator. That would be my advice. You may feel like you're at your weakest moment. In my words, I felt like I was in a state of Blackness. There was no light at all, no tunnel. I would say find that one thing that does give you light. And for me, it was my son. You know, it may be your mom, your dad, someone. Find that light and then, you know, hang on to it for dear life. Mm -hmm. But we are examples that you can get to the other side.
0: And that there is an other (laughs) side to begin with. There is. There is. There is. Honestly, I did not believe (laughs) that there was another side. Like at at all the different treatment facilities and hospitalizations and whatnot, people would always be like, oh, it gets better. It gets better. And like, I would look at them with just no light in my eyes whatsoever. And I'm like, how can you tell me that? And so, you know, when people say that, I'll be honest, Mm -hmm. I hate when people say it'll get better. What
1: I like to say is we learn how to manage. There you go. See, yeah. We we learn how to manage how to deal with the thing. Mm-hmm. That's what we learn to do because the thing is never going away. It happened. So we now learn to manage how we choose to react to it. And it's okay to be angry. It's okay to want to shut down. The key is not to stay that way. Mm-hmm. Give people permission to feel those emotions. And I feel like you didn't if that was going on, you didn't have the chance to do it because people, it's going to get better tomorrow. The sun will come up and everything is, exactly. the okay, that's not
0: life. It's not life. Right. I, I, and I know it's referred to now as, as toxic positivity, but it's, it's like there's these dismissive platitudes that people just throw out at situations like these because they either don't know what to say, or they're just very, very uncomfortable. I, mean, level. I feel like it makes yeah. them feel better. Like so I said the thing and like, oh. I hope you buy some sunshine from it. That's like every other day of the year, people will just be like, thank you for your service. And, and, you know, <laughs> they're like, I helped a veteran today. And then yeah, they really I, only bought, care I, about... I bought them lunch. Right. I them lunch. Okay. <laughs> but then like the only day <laughs> people, do have a concerted thought about veterans, is Veterans Day, but then, mm-hmm. and maybe Memorial Day. But other than that, they're just like, thank you for your service. And right. <laughs> like, oh right. my God. Right. 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 <laughs> but again, Nicole, I, I do wanna say just a, a hearty thanks for, for coming on here and, and sharing such a, a deeply personal story. Um, if you wanted to tell people where they could find your book and, and any other projects you might be working on in the future. OK, where you can find these tears don't go with your combat boots. You can find
1: it on www.nikki Narratives, N-I-C-K-Y-N-A-R-R-A-T-I-V-E-S dot com. I will autograph the book for you for the next month, month after I'm going to move it to Amazon. Uh, my next project with this book is actually I'm going to look to put it on a small screen. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm that, that's what I'm in talks with now. I mean, honestly, when you look out, it's not a story that we talk about. Like you said, we talk about the book. This is my way of continuing the conversation. And so I'm Mm -hmm. in talks with some people to start the ball rolling and get in on a small screen, hopefully into a couple of festivals.
0: Amazing. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for that. That's incredible. Congratulations on that. That's Thank you. That's wonderful. And if there was anyone you wanted to give a, a shout out to for being there through your journey, please give oh, them their of flowers. Course. <laughs> of course,
1: my family,
0: my friends, mm-hmm. my
1: son. My he's the reason why I go hard every day, and that's Omar yeah. Bassnight. That's my that's my heart. He, he is the reason why I. Um, choosing to do this, to, to show him that mom is stronger every day. So if there was a special shout out, it, it, it's to him.
0: Wow. See, you have a, an amazing mom. You heard it here. I'm just going to repeat it. But, <laughs> but yes, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate just your perspective from being leadership and being able to tell people what's going on in those conversations behind closed doors because, you know, the rest of us, we really don't get to see any of that. Thank you so much for coming on here and, and just being courageous and, and sharing this perspective. I, I'm so indebted to you. <laughs> well, thank you yeah. for the opportunity. I really appreciate, you
1: know, actually, you know, us impromptu meeting on a Facebook group and, yeah. you know, us reaching out. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. And I, and I actually look forward to the other episodes as well. And I want to thank awesome. you. I want I want to thank you for being courageous, too. You know, you stepping out, using your gifts to continue the conversation for continued healing in other people's journeys as well.
0: All right, that concludes our episode. Isn't she just incredible? Oh my goodness. Nikki is, like I say every episode, she's added to my list of heroes, but she is just this wonderful, unique, just pillar of awesomeness and strength. So again, if you want to send words of encouragement, it is very difficult to get on here and share these deeply personal stories. So if you go to the Listen Online section of the website, silencevoicesmst.com, you will see the Salute to Survivors tab, click on that, and then go ahead and write your message. We will be reading these out pretty shortly. We have quite a few accumulated, so definitely add your name In your message to the list. Um, We also do have some new content coming up on YouTube. I wanted to mention that. So I'm going to do some more segments that are about the history of MST, how it works, people that have been influential in this space. And these episodes will be there as well. Don't be afraid to go check that out and share it on your social media and keep letting people know we're fighting the good fight. Next week, I have an interview with just another incredible person. Her name is Shay. She has one of the wildest stories I have ever heard. And you've heard my interviews, so that's saying a lot. But this is especially an episode you don't want to miss. She gives a huge, huge, huge piece of information if you are trying to file your claim with the VA regarding MST there is a shortcut. (laughs) And it is one that means that your claim will get special attention. So do not miss that episode. Subscribe, bookmark it, put it on your calendar, whatever you need to do so that you get this information so that you can get what you are entitled to. And again, my name is Rachel Smith, and I invite you to stay safe, be kind, and take care. Have a great one. We'll see you next time.